we're, we're, uh, we finished up a couple of short series from the Old Testament, and, and now we're going to take a, a series from the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. And I was talking a couple of weeks ago with, with Jose and asking, you know, bounce, we, sometimes we get together and just bounce things off of each other. And I said, I'm thinking about this, or I'm thinking about this, or I'm thinking about Hebrews. What do you think? And he said, I've never heard a series on Hebrews. And I said, oh, really? And I thought, neither have I. Maybe it's just really difficult, so everyone avoids it. And I'm like, I'm in. I'm in. Let's, let's go where people don't like to go. Let's boldly go where no one has gone. No, that's, uh, sorry, um, that's getting carried away. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to start a series now on, on the book of Hebrews. And, and I, I love this, you know, in, in starting to study and research and looking through the first few chapters and reading the book a number of times. Uh, I, I love what's going on. I love what the message is. And so I want to read to you the first four verses. Now, today is the introduction to the book of Hebrews. And the first four verses of the book of Hebrews is kind of an introduction too. And, and I realized something, t- because I can always remember uh, at times hearing other people speak. Whenever they said it's the introduction, it was like, oh crap, this is gonna be lame. I mean, because how fun can an introduction be? How many of you read the introduction of a book? How many of you students, oh, put your hands down, no you don't. <laughs> no, yes. Like students, when you get your textbook, you go, oh, I can't wait to read the introduction to this science book. Uh, not so much, not so much, right? I understand that. But we're going to look at the introduction because we have to look at the introduction. It's the first four verses. It's very important. It sets the tone for the whole book. It gives us some material that it says, this is going to be explained more. It's going to explain deeper. We're going to dive into this deeper as we go through 13 chapters of looking through these things. So here is um, the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. You can follow along in your Bibles, you can, on your phone if you have it, or you, I'll just read it out loud and you can listen. Here we go. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. So if you, when you read that, it's very dense. I mean, there's just all these superlatives. There's all these words that are just packed with meaning. And he's trying to get something across to them. And he's saying in these days, you know, I've noticed in these days that we're in, talking to people, people seem maybe more exhausted than normal. I bump into a lot of people that say, you know, yeah, things are going pretty well. I'm just, I'm tired. I'm exhausted. And, and it's, always, it's always a problem, but it seems more lately. And if you're, if you're feeling that way, physically tired, maybe digitally tired, right? Maybe spiritually depleted, maybe financially discouraged, maybe emotionally exhausted, going through tragedies or difficult times, all of those things. Maybe, maybe, maybe you're a teacher, and right now you're just going, oh, here it comes, right? <laughs> and you're a student going, oh, here it comes. Right? Just, just this type of stuff, weariness, it attacks us. And what does weariness do? Whether it's 
whether it's physically or spiritually, whether it's you know health, uh, finances, whatever, whatever it may be, it it we get attacked by with temptation. Here, do this. This will make you feel better, right? Drink this. Eat this. Do, do, do all these things, and they become a temptation. And it leads ultimately to the temptation to give up, to give up on yourself, to give up on others, to give up on God and maybe begin to drift spiritually. Now, we are not the first people to struggle and we will not be the last. And over the centuries, people have struggled. People ask, how can I have a faith that endures? Will my faith endure the tough times? And Hebrews, this book is written to a community of believers who are struggling. Some seem ready to give up. Some seem to have given up. And it was written to deal with this struggle. It's 13 chapters long, and it addresses this issue the whole way, the whole way. And there's a lot that we don't know in this book. There's a lot that we don't know about this book. Uh, it's, inc- it's incredibly deep, and yet we don't know who wrote it. We don't know who the author is. People have lots of ideas. Some say, uh, and, I, and I, in, in my reading, you know, I just come across all these different theories that people have about who wrote the book of Hebrews. Some say the apostle Paul, but he uses language here. The writer uses language, I should say, that it doesn't, sometimes makes you think, that can't be, that's not Paul. He doesn't say that type of thing. Uh, some have suggested Apollos, some Barnabas, some Priscilla. No one really knows. There's just all these ideas. It has a very different style. Right? It does not begin with a greeting like a typical letter would we begin. In, in the greeting, we just read, in, in the beginning, we, there's no greeting. It just launches right into the deep end. Right? It has greetings at the end like a letter. So people go, well, what is it? Is it a sermon? Does somebody, you know, is it, is it like verbatim of a sermon? Is it a letter? And we don't know. This is what we do know. There's this group of believers that are struggling. They're exhausted. They're ready to turn the towel. We see, especially in chapter 10, they have suffered. It goes into some detail, suffered. They've had their houses ransacked, their stuff taken from them. Some have been dragged in the public square and publicly humiliated in front of their neighbors and their friends and their family. Some have gone to prison. Some have been dragged off to prison. I was reading a guy um, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he was talking about a few years back um, going to China, and he was doing a, uh, doing a, helping some Chinese pastors, talking about pastoring, talking about how to how to preach, how to all these different kind of ideas, sharing from his knowledge, and 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 he was uh, talked a little bit about this, the book of Hebrews, and he said, you know, some went to prison, and he said some possibly here, he says. We have to face the fact that we might have to go to prison. And, and, and there was a couple hundred people there, and this Chinese man stood up and said, we, we've all gone to prison. Every person here has been to prison. And then another guy says, yeah, it's kind of like a requirement in China. If you've been to prison, you can be a pastor. You have to go to prison to be a pastor. And he kind of made a joke, and they all laughed. They're all like, yeah, that's really, yeah. And this guy who was speaking, he, he wrote, he said, I was sobered by the fact that 150 to 200 people in that room had spent time in prison at least once for their faith. And he said, I should sit and they should teach me because they know, they know. They've been through the fire. 
And so in Hebrews, in this book, we have these people and they're beginning to think, is it worth it? Have you ever felt that? You ever been in a situation in your life where you start to look at your, your life and your faith and you go, is this, is this worth it? And some have pulled away in different ways. Some stopped gathering with the other believers. They withdrew. Some have totally walked away from their faith. It's kind of like as if some have said, if this is what following Christ is like, no thanks. I can't take this. And so the author is teaching them and pleading with them to hold fast, to press on, to endure to the end. And how do we do this? This is going to become a, a, this is going to be a total surprise to you. The answer throughout the whole thing is fix your eyes on Jesus. You're like, what? Never saw that coming, right? Fix your eyes on Jesus. And he's going to talk about it in a whole bunch of different ways, but he's going to be saying the same thing over and over and over to get them to understand. How do we endure? How do we finish well? We look to Jesus. And we see who he really is. Because there's the problem, right? The problem is this. Everybody says they don't mind looking to Jesus. I've met tons of people who aren't Christians. And they say, oh, but I love, oh, Jesus. Yeah, yeah, like that, right? He's going to, the book of Hebrews is going to teach us to look to Jesus. And it's going to explain who is Jesus. Because there's a lot of different ideas about Jesus out there. And so the book of Hebrews is going to hammer that over and over and over. We're going to fix our eyes on Jesus in all his glory, all his magnificence. The main theme of this book is the incomparable magnificence of Jesus. Or Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Now, in case you didn't know, I'm older. I want to finish well. Right? I was talking with a, another couple recently, and they mentioned something about some older people, and I was like, that's us. <laughs> We're the older people, right? And I want to finish well. I want to finish well in this life. I want to finish well for my wife. I want to finish well for my kids. I want to finish well for my grandkids. I want to finish well for anyone that I've had the tiniest influence in their life over these years. But mainly, I want to finish well for Jesus, because he's brought me all this way. He's walked with me all this way through all these things, and I want to finish well. And Hebrews is going to teach us, here's how you do it. Here's how you stay true and finish well. And so in Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, I have, um, and <laughs> I have eight points. You're like, what? Bob, the three-point, an eight-point sermon? It's like one of these days, Bob, one of these days, a nursery worker is going to murder you. <laughs> and with the length of your sermons, no jury would ever convict them. It will be justifiable homicide. All right, short points. Okay, I got eight short points. But this is, oh, oh, this, I'm, I'm already getting talked back to. Look at this. Prophet is without honor. Okay. First thing I want you to see is Jesus is the revelation of God. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors and through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he was spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. Okay, he says we've been spoken various times, different times throughout history. God used prophets, used them in different ways. Um, 
And, and he uses, it's almost like uh, Paul, I almost said Paul's the author. It's almost like the author. If I say Paul, you just understand I, it was a slip. Uh, he's, he's making a play on words. He, he uses the same type of adjective like three times in a row. But in, in, in various ways, it's the word polytropos is, is the word. And it means in bits and pieces at a time. It's, it's like a, a Hansel and Gretel thing. You know, these bits and pieces that lead for a trail. But it's better than how that worked out. And... Uh, and, and that's the idea, is that we get all this information from these Old Testament prophets in various ways, different ways, at various times. And it's been leading, leading, leading to something. And now, it's Jesus. Like he's saying, there's a finality here. It's Jesus. Now there's one way. It's not in bits and pieces. It's the full package. God spoke. This is how he revealed himself, through speaking. What does that mean? He's a relational God. He speaks to us. God spoke. And he speaks in different ways. He spoke through a donkey. He spoke through a burning bush. He spoke through prophets and their words and actions. Ezekiel lays down for a year to, to, to just to make a point that God was trying to make to, to the people around him. Um, um, Jeremiah does different things. One of them is he takes a jar. He says, look at this. Smash. He smashes the jar to make a point. God is speaking. God is telling them something. But now, there's no intermediary. There's no inanimate object. Now it's his son. God has spoken through Jesus. And people can ask, what is God like? We might answer that philosophically. There's ways of, 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 of addressing that problem theologically. But here's the answer. The core answer is, is Jesus. Jesus is what God is like. Think of him. If you want to know what God is like, Think of Jesus healing a woman in deep pain. Think of Jesus getting angry at religious leaders for burdening people with rules. Think of Jesus showing compassion for crowds who have no one to care for them, no shepherd who loves them. Picture Jesus healing outsiders and foreigners and the least of these. Picture Jesus dying on the cross because of his great love for us, his great love for you. And, he said, and people say, what is God like? The book of Hebrews is telling us, it's Jesus. Look at him and you see what God is like. He's the final and the full revelation of God. Second one, Jesus is the son of God. In that passage it said, and he has spoken to us by his son. And this leads us into the deep end of the pool, okay? This is, this is where people can go crazy, but, but it leads us to truth. This leads us to the Trinity. The idea, it's not easy to grasp. But you know what? Should it surprise us that we would struggle trying to understand an infinite, timeless being when we are finite and we are bound by time? Sometimes I, people say, oh, it's so hard. The Trinity is so hard. And I said, yeah, that's a good thing. Because if it was easy... Who, what is this God? He's not beyond us. We can figure him out. The Trinity is basically that God is one in essence, but eternally exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is huge and deep. I want to tell you, if, if that is something that, that, that you struggle with, that you'd like more information on, there's a book. Here it is. I have one copy. Otherwise, you've got to go buy one yourself. And it, 
It's Delighting in the Trinity. A good friend of mine named Jose Luna got me onto this book. And uh, it's an introductory thing, but it is short. It's got a great introduction. (laughs) It's simple and it's easy to read. And it deals with issues concerning the Trinity and what that means for us. It's a great book. I encourage it. If you're interested, let me know. I'm not, I don't think I, no, I'm not going to let you take mine. You just have to get your own. All right. So, and, and it, it gives us these ideas of how the Trinity works, like the Father plans, the Son accomplishes, the, the Spirit applies, the different ways that this, this, this works. And it focuses, it's in this book that we're going to look at, Hebrews, he's going to focus basically on Jesus as a part of the Trinity. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the rightful owner of everything. In uh, verse 2, it says he is the heir of all things. He's the heir of all things. So what does that mean for us, practically speaking, as we walk here on this earth? It means this. We are not the owners. We are the stewards. We have been entrusted with things. And he has called us to be faithful with them for his purposes and his glory. He's saying, I have blessed you. You have received this as a blessing. Now, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to bless others? Or are you going to just all about me? It's all mine. And God goes, that's not why I blessed you. I blessed you to bless others because it's all his. Our money, it's his money. Our giftedness, the things that we're gifted at, he gave those to us to be used for his glory. Our time, our career, our relationships. We have to think in that way. We are the stewards of those things. Fourth one, Jesus is the creator, the sustainer of the universe. Okay, I know some of you are writing that down, and I switched so fast, but uh, right quick, right quick, right quick. Okay, done. And through whom also he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining, and this is a part of that, sustaining all things by his powerful word. All things by his powerful word. He upholds the universe. He sustains the universe. Um, I don't know if you've ever done this. I just took a little time uh, a couple weeks ago to just r- look up a few facts. I, I like that kind of stuff. I just looked up a few things. I looked up how big. How big is the universe? What's the latest data we have on how big the universe is? Well, we got all these galaxies that are a part of the universe, and ours is the Milky Way. Ours None of the other galaxies are named after a candy bar. Just ours. We're special. Others are like Andromeda. Whatever. Okay, so ours is the Milky Way. Our, and you know, they measure space in light years. How long does it take light to travel uh, for a year? That distance is a light year. Pretty simple, right? That seems simple. All right, our galaxy is thousands and thousands of light years across. Our galaxy has over 100 billion stars like ours. 100 billion stars, thousands and thousands, maybe 10 or 15,000 light years across. That's our galaxy, just our galaxy. The universe has, I feel like Carl Sagan now, and I realize that anybody over 50 only knows what I'm saying. Billions and billions. Okay, our, our 
universe has billions and billions and billions of galaxies, right? That have hundreds of billions of stars that are tens of thousands of light years across. This is our galaxy. It's too big for us to even, we can't handle that. It's too big for us to even handle. And Jesus keeps the whole thing working every day by the power of his word. He speaks. He spoke things into existence and then his spoken word keeps them functioning. All of that. Somebody asked me one time, when will it be the end of time? And I said, when Jesus stops speaking. And then everything's going maybe back to that infinitesimal small spot. It's hard for us to comprehend this. We can't, and this is good for us to learn. We can't see it, but he is working. And it's something for us to hold on to in difficult times. Because if he can run the universe, you can trust him in your situation. And just as I said earlier, because he knows your pain. He knows the pain of being of betrayal. He knows the pain of, of the agony of physical, physical pain, which God had never experienced before. He knows what it is to be hungry. He knows what it is to be cold. He knows what it is to live life just like you. So, fifth one. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. In that previous verse, it said the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact rep representation of his being. The word glory in the Greek is this word doxa. It has this idea of excellence or value or splendor or brightness, but those don't quite encompass. It has this idea uh, not just of excellence or, or like value of, of being worth a lot or something like that. It has this idea of excellence or splendor or value on display to be seen not just inherent value, on display, to be seen. And Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. He is the display of the glory of God. It is beauty that is seen. That's what's so key about it. You know, I do, I do over the years, I've done a lot of weddings. And, and uh, I, I've noticed something peculiar in weddings. No one, when a wedding is done, goes, the groom was magnificent, right? Oh, that moment where he just stood there next to the pastor, breathtaking, right? No one says that. What do they say? The bride was magnificent. When she walked down that aisle and everyone stood, that's the moment, if you ask people, and I do this, I ask people, what do you remember, like wedding, couple wedding, what, what do you remember? People say, the bride walking down the aisle. Tears were flowing. Everybody's just overwhelmed by the glory of it. That's why I always tell grooms, <laughs> we need you in this, but you're not that important. <laughs> it's like a bathroom in a museum. You have to have one, but no one goes there to look at it. Same thing, same thing. Okay. I know I've said that before. Some of you are like, come on, Bob. So, so this is the thing. God's infinite worth, his excellence is on display in a lot of things. Beautiful sunsets, glorious scenery, great works of art, beautiful music, all those things. 
But the full display is the radiance of Jesus because he is the radiance of God's glory. And the thing is, Bible tells us we're made for glory. We're made for that. We're made to see that glory. We're made to be involved in that glory. We're made to share that glory as he comes into our lives and works through us. But what do we do? What do we do? We settle for poor substitutes. We settle for things that won't last, maybe fame, or maybe just being known, being respected, power, money. We watch things for a short-lived endorphin rush instead of being in the glory of God where he wants us because we were made for that. And he's the exact imprint of God. Now, it hit me, you know, as we say he's the exact imprint of God, what would those people have been thinking about when he said exact imprint of God? They would have, and this is weird, they would have been thinking about coins. Because the thing is, in those days, no one, probably in the Roman Empire, more than, no more than a few hundred people knew what Caesar looked like. Of the millions and millions and millions of people in that empire, there's only a few that actually saw him very often, saw him enough to know what he looked like. And so what they would do then is they would make coins and the current Caesar, would, his face would be stamped on those coins along with a little phrase to try to establish his credentials. Um, when it was Caesar Augustus, they stamped his coin and they said, Caesar Augustus, the son of God, has brought peace on earth. So you see, when angels announced Jesus, the son of God, bringing peace on earth, that is a direct, direct threat. That's like, yeah, Caesar, you're nothing. But anyways, that's just me thinking. Um, they would imprint so that any person in that kingdom could look at a coin and say, that's what Caesar looks like. That's what Caesar looks like because we've made an imprint. And so what, is, what are we saying here? What does that make them think? They go, ah, I see Jesus. That's what God looks like. That's what God looks like. When I see Jesus, when I see his words, when I see his actions, when I see everything he's done, that tells me this is what God looks like. Jesus is the exact image of God. The writer is impressing upon us. You can't see the Father, but when you see Jesus in Scripture, you're looking directly into the face of God. You are seeing God in the flesh. He is the radiance of his glory. Number six, Jesus is the remedy for sin. All right, and that, that is uh, in verse three. Well, I'll just read it to you. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he made... After he had provided purification for sins. All right? So what is it telling us? He is, he is the answer. He's the answer for our sins. He's the remedy for our sins. And so what, is, what happens here? Well, for us, the problem is, I think sometimes, and here's my problem, I, I lost my page. There it is. Okay. The problem is sometimes we don't like to talk about the word sin. It's not, it's not a popular word in our culture, right? It's not like everybody goes around and says, let's talk about sin, yo. No, they're, they're not interested in talking about it because it's very neckward, negative, neckward, negative, backwards, got them both together. People are like, what? who are you to say? Who are you to tell me what sin is? Who do you think you are to go around and talk to people about sin? And here's the thing, the book of Hebrews addresses it it addresses the brokenness that comes from it, and it addresses it head on. It says, we're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about it. This is not popular in our culture. 
People don't like, they want to talk about the positive things. But this points to the way that God had to deal with sin by the death of his son, the purification of sins. We've all heard that we've all heard Christ died for our sins, but Hebrews is going to dig deep into that. Hebrews is going to dig, this book is going to dig deep into the Old Testament and the sacrificial system and how that all led, like those breadcrumbs I was talking about, all led and pointed, boom, 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 right to Jesus. So that when Jesus shows up, John the Baptist, remember when we were doing John, the book of John, John the Baptist says, oh my goodness, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What is he saying? The sacrificial system has now been completed. We were sacrificing those lambs for, for temporary covering of sin, but now the lamb who doesn't cover, notice he doesn't say, behold the lamb of God who covers the sins of the world. He doesn't say that. He says the lamb of God who takes away. He's not gonna cover them, he's gonna make them disappear. Such a beautiful idea. God says that as a person follows him, accepts Christ as their savior, and they, and, they, and they get themselves into trouble, they sin, and they come to him and they confess, and he says, as far as the east is from the west, I put them, right? I put them where they will never be remembered again. Never be remembered again. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing. That opens up a freedom to us that's hard to grasp. And so we see how anyone can bring their sin and shame to the cross and know that these sins were paid for by Jesus dying on the cross. Now forgiveness is possible. We can be washed clean when we trust the finished work of the cross. By God's grace, we receive this. And for some of you, this might be new, and I can't emphasize enough that this is a decision that needs to be made. But for most of us, probably this is a reminder of something we've already known. We are being called to walk in the light and in the newness of Christ because you are accepted, you are adopted, you are loved, you are declared righteous, you have been declared that you will be victorious. Why? Because Jesus is the remedy for our sin. Number seven, Jesus is our king. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Now, this, is, this phrase, he sat down at the right hand, is such a loaded phrase. For, and this book written to these Hebrew, mostly, believers, they would know this from the Old Testament. And for many of them, they would key in right away, Psalm 110, because it's mentioned twice in Psalm 110. My Lord, it says, my Lord sat down at the right hand of the Lord. David writes this twice. It's where we begin to see that David has begun to grasp that He's, that's like the proto idea of the Trinity. He goes, wait, my God is gonna sit down at the right hand of my God. I don't know exactly what that means, but God told me to write it. And so he writes it because he's saying, and, and so when it says he sat down at the right hand, the, for, those, for those Hebrew Christians familiar, very familiar with the Old Testament, they'd be going, ah, that's what David said. That's what David said. He's... We're told in the New Testament that Jesus is our prophet, our priest, and our king. But right here is where the king part is being emphasized. Eighth one, Jesus is better. I think there's other ways I could have worded this, but, but I think it's just this is, this is the phrase that is going to resonate. It's 13 times we're going to see is better. Jesus is better in, in the book of, of Hebrews. And this is from verse 4. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited. As the, as the name he has inherited as superior to theirs, is superior to theirs. And so what is it saying? And we're going to see that it's saying 
there's the supremacy of Christ. When we get, when we weigh everything up, Jesus is at the top. He's better than the angels. Chapter three and four, he's better than Moses. Chapter five through seven, he's a better high priest. Chapter eight and nine, he's the better mediator of a covenant, of salvation, a covenant. Uh, Chapter 10, he's the better sacrifice. 11 through 13, he's the better author. All right, he's the author of the better salvation. He fulfills the Old Testament, but he doesn't just fulfill it. He goes way beyond it, beyond their imagining, beyond our imagining. So we have this final word through Jesus. He sat down. It's final. I'm done. That's all of it. This is the truth, and it is absolute. And that's a wonderful thing, and it's a hard thing at the same time. You think about that. He sat down. This is it. The finality of everything is in Jesus And how do people react to that? This is what people often, how often people react. I mean, we look at it, we say, it's wonderful. God wants to have a relationship with me. And at the same time, this is incredibly hard because he says, this is the way. And we react to that. People react to that. But you know what? If you think about it, that is how all relationships work if they have any kind of depth to them. Let me explain that. It's going to, all relationships have this wonderful sense to it. We are in this relationship and we love you. And it has this hard sense to it because sometimes there is just the way. Sometimes there's a finality that we don't like. Let me explain. You know, you have two people. They love each other. They, they want totally, they want a, that big step. We're going to get married. And then we find out that this other person contradicts us at times, crosses our will, tells me, I mean, tells us things we don't want to hear. And we don't like that. I don't like that. See, you figure that everything, you know, we kind of figure that everything is negotiable until we realize who we're married to. Right? And suddenly things change. We think there should be always this give and take, but there's not always give and take. There are some things that there's a finality to. There's some things that they say, no, not that. That's not going to happen. I don't think that's right. I will not participate in that. I will not do that. I will not say that. I will not. I don't think we should do this. Final. That's my opinion. I believe that with all my heart. And if you can't accept these things, if you can't accept some of those finalities, what happens is the relationship suffers. The relationship can't be as intimate as it possibly could be. Because sometimes, and I can remember uh, one day my wife going, I have never understood how you can step over a pair of underwear and not know that they're there. And she said, I always thought you were going, nah, I'm too busy to bend over. And she said, but I started to realize you don't even see them. And I've learned to accept it. I've learned to accept it. See, sometimes, and that's a silly one, but sometimes there is a finality in relationships. There's some things where we go, I have to learn to accept this. I'm not, it's not my job to change this person. It's my job to learn to love and accept these things. Now, if they're things that are evil or wrong, obviously, that brings a whole different element into it. But there will be times in any intimate relationship where one person says to the other, I can't do, no, no. 
And if you're going to have an intimate relationship, you have to learn to deal with finalities. You have to learn to deal sometimes with things where this is the way it is. We have to adapt to that or the relationship will suffer. The men of Stepford, Connecticut didn't like that idea. If you've ever read the book, Stepford Wives, or seen the two movies, The Stepford Wives, you know, they had a solution. They had a solution. Okay, now this lends itself right now to silly, stupid, male-oriented jokes. Men, don't, don't whisper to your wife. Don't whisper to your wife. The men of Stepford, Connecticut, if you read the book of the movies, had a different idea. They put microchips in their women so that they became compliant, almost like slaves. Because these wives, they found out, had a will. These wives, they found out, had a finality. They contradicted them at time, and they didn't like that. So they put in microchips. No more finalities. No more things I have to say, you know, I'll, I'll just learn to deal with that. They were totally compliant. They're happy doing whatever the men wanted. But in the book, in both the movies, something's missing. A personal relationship now is, is not happy. You can't have it. You can't have, you can't have a personal relationship with an appliance. And that's what they've done. They, they, they turned their wives into appliances that just serve their every whim. That's all they were, because they always, and you'll, you'll get this when you see something, it's always, yes, dear, whatever you want, dear, right? That's not a person. That's an appliance. And I have people that are always saying to me, I believe in God. I believe in that loving God. I don't like the God of judgment. So there's some things the Bible says that I don't believe. I can't accept it, not in this day and age, because we know now, we don't like what it says, so we can't accept that. So there's parts I like and parts I don't like. But my answer always is this, if you believe in God, if you, if you do not believe that the Bible is the authoritative word of God, but you believe in God, let me ask you, you've got a problem. How does your God ever contradict you? Because you fashion this God to be just like you. How does this God ever cross your will? How does this God that you have tell you, ever tell you anything you don't want to hear? See, you've put a microchip in your God and you've made him an appliance or made her an appliance, whatever God you're dealing with. And you make them do, yes, dear, anything you want. Okay, well, no, we don't like that part. That's what you've done. We have to accept the authority of the word of God and adjust to it. Otherwise, it's not a personal relationship with the author. We have to do that. And Hebrews will show us that Jesus is better than all. He is supreme. He is magnificent. And so Jesus being unique and superior, it can be difficult. But, you know, here's the thing. I love how people, they, they say, you know, Jesus just taught all about love and he never really made these big claims, you know, that kind of thing. And what gets me is, I, I was talking to somebody a while back and I said, he, he makes the big claims but he does it, sometimes he even makes them indirectly humongous claims. Let me give you an example. In Luke chapter 10, because these indirect claims can be astounding. Luke chapter 10, they're talking about demons and da-da-da-da. And all of a sudden, Jesus, and it just seems like it doesn't fit. He says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. What? What is he saying? 
before the creation of the universe, I saw Lucifer go his own way. And the fall was horrific. It was incredible. It was amazing. And it was terrible. I was there. Thought you guys might like to know. Can you imagine? And they're just like, um, okay. And just off the cuff, just off the cuff, he says things like that. In, in Matthew chapter 23, around verse 34, he said, I keep sending you prophets and you keep killing them. Wait, what? Jesus is saying, he's saying, look, I'm God, right? He's just in a very indirect and in a very, he's, it's not like he's trying to prove a point. He's frustrated and he's just saying, I keep sending you these prophets. They're speaking my words and you keep killing them. And what do they, what do they think? They're like, can't believe you just, we're going to kill you next, right? Let's keep the tradition. They just keep, it, it's, it, he just says it off the cuff. He's not trying to make any specific point. He's just frustrated with them. And he does that all the time. In the Old Testament, you hear the prophets all the time saying, thus saith the Lord. Jesus doesn't say it that way. Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, I'm talking to you, I say to you, here's the correct interpretation. Here's how you look at that. Here's what that really means. It's all over the Gospels. I want to read you. I always hate to read quotes because sometimes they get long. This is N.T. Wright, though, and he's addressing this whole issue. And he says, how can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that fire has become flesh, that life, capital L, life, has walked into our midst? Christianity either means that. It either means that. The fires become flesh. The hurricanes become, become alive. The true life now walks among us. Christianity means that. Or it means nothing. It is the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality in the world, or it is a sham of total nonsense. And most people unable to cope with either saying, with, with, unable to cope with saying either of these two, they are condemned. They just walk along, condemned to life in a shallow world that's in between both of them. And that's where a lot of people are now. They say, I love Jesus. I like Jesus. But I mean, well, some of this stuff he says, I don't, I don't agree with that. Some of the stuff in the Bible, I don't agree with that. That's old. We don't have to, we don't have to worry about that anymore, blah, 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 like that. And, they, and they, they, they weed out what they don't like and just keep the parts they like. And what, that's what N.T. Wright is saying so many people do. They don't grapple with the fact that here's the claim. Here's the claim of Christianity. The hurricane is alive. Fire became flesh. Ultimate life became a human being and walked among us and taught us, and we have a record of his teaching. It means that, or the only other option is, it is total nonsense. It's a sham. It's all a big lie. Those are the only two choices. People don't like making those kind of choices, so they kind of find some in-between spot that makes them feel good for a while. But every so often, they sense there's more. Every so often, I'm telling you, I can remember before I knew Jesus Christ, there were these times in my life there were these times in my life where I stopped. I can remember one time vividly laying on my bed at night, not sleeping, going, are you there? I, and just thinking, I want, I want this to be true, but I don't know if I believe it. I don't know if I believe it. But my heart was telling me, there's a God, and you need him desperately. And so, for us, we can read the Gospels, Either Jesus is just wicked or he's a lunatic or he's what he says he is and we have to throw ourselves at his feet and say, 
command me. I'm your servant. Those are our only options in these things. It's the only options. And so, as we go into the book of Hebrews, we're going to delve into these things. And it's going to be, I promise you, it's going it's, it's to be life-changing because we're going to see more and more of who Jesus Christ really is and what are the implications of those things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true. Lord, that we can trust it, that it shows itself in our lives. It illuminates us. And Lord, as we get glimpses and glimpses of walking in the light with you, help us to always want more. Help us to be people who are found faithful. And God, we thank you for this book that is written to people like us with problems like we have. And so, Lord, help us to be faithful to apply the things that it tells us to our lives and see the changes that will come over time. We give you the praise and the honor and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.